Amen. Well, if you have your Bibles with you this morning, I encourage you to open them to Luke chapter 1, a little break from the book of Revelation. Luke chapter 1. Luke chapter 1. We're going to look at verses 46 through 56. I want to welcome Reach Church DeSoto joining us online this morning. We're grateful for you and the venue service meeting right down the hall and all those who are joining us via our live stream. We thank you for joining us this morning. Um, All my Christmas messages, there's one part of Luke chapter 1 that I've never preached on, uh, the Magnificat. And uh, so this week, I thought, let's dive in. And it has been uh, a wonderful study to me personally. I pray it will be a blessing to you this morning. The context, as we all know, is Mary, uh, this teenage girl, probably somewhere around 17, 18 years old. Kind of hard to imagine, isn't it? 17, 18-year-old girl. Humble background. City of Nazareth. um, Despised city. It's in the region of Galilee. It's up in the north, too far north to come down and worship at the temple. They had to trade with the Gentiles. It was a despised region. In fact, you'll remember it was Nathaniel who said, can any good thing come out of Nazareth? So here's this faithful teenage girl, humble background, and she's betrothed to a man named Joseph. He's a good man, humble man, carpenter. Um, What's interesting about Joseph is he's in the royal line, in the lineage of David, And the fact of the matter is, had it not been for the unfaithfulness of the nation, Joseph could have been king. Yet here he is in the unfaithfulness of the nation, serving as a lowly carpenter, and now betrothed to Mary. And Mary here finds herself between the betrothal and the eventual wedding, probably a lot of excitement in her heart as she looks towards the wedding, but also... Uh, probably a little bit of anxiety. She thinks about in-laws and the home and the future. And in the midst of all that, an angel appears to her in verse 30. And this angel tells Mary, you're going to have a son. Not just any son. But he will be the most high. He will sit on the throne of David. He'll reign over the house of Jacob forever. As Mary hears those words, I think she almost immediately knew. This is the Messiah. And her response, at least initially, is a bit doubtful. She says, I have never been with a man. Next week, we'll look at that. The virgin birth of Jesus is a non-negotiable for us as Christians. Mary says, I've never been with a man. How could this be possible? And you'll remember the angel, the angel reassures her. and says the Holy Spirit will overshadow you. And then this angel tells Mary, reminds her of a truth I'm sure Mary knew. That nothing is impossible with God. And so here is Mary making to me what I believe to be one of the greatest statements of faith in all of God's word there in verse 38. Even in the midst of her uncertainty, not not sure of how all this will end. She says, behold, the bond slave, she'll use that title again in her song. Behold, the bond slave of the Lord, may it be done to me 
according to your word, that she may not understand it all, but she'll submit her life. And then what does she do? She goes to her relative, Elizabeth. She's been told that kind of a sign of the certainty of this is that your relative, Elizabeth, is with child in her older age. And so she goes to Elizabeth, and I think she was just in need of some encouragement from a more seasoned believer, somebody who would offer her some wisdom and some insight. Isn't it amazing how we all need some spiritual aunts and uncles in our lives at critical times just to reassure us and comfort us? And Elizabeth's probably the only one who could understand. In fact, at this moment, there's really only three people who know what's going on. Zacharias, Elizabeth, and Mary. And if you remember, Zacharias isn't talking right now. And so I bet Elizabeth excited to see Mary, somebody to talk to. And here is Mary. She goes to her and she opens the door. That's the way I picture it in my mind anyway. And she greets Elizabeth. The, the typical Jewish greeting would be, the Lord be with you. And the Lord was with her. And Elizabeth cries out, this, this elder woman to this younger woman in verse 42, blessed are you among women and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And how has it happened to me that the mother of my Lord would come to me? It's amazing, before Mary can even say anything about a child, Elizabeth being filled with the Holy Spirit and she, she feels John leap in her womb. It, this is powerful because part of Luke, the purpose of his writing is that you and I would have certainty that Jesus is the Messiah. And if you know your Old Testament, something has to happen before a Messiah arrives on the scene. What has to happen? He, he must be preceded by the forerunner. Somebody's got to come before him announcing his coming, kind of like a bailiff in a courtroom announcing the judge is about to enter the room, all rise. There had to be a forerunner. And Luke is telling us, John... Six months conceived and still in the womb is already pointing us to Jesus. And uh, there's some deep truths here because the fact of the matter is Jesus is probably only days conceived in the womb. And yet John, the person John in the womb, recognizes the person of Jesus as the Savior and the Messiah of the world. And Elizabeth says to Mary, you're blessed. And how is it that the mother of my Lord would come to me? She says, what an amazing privilege to have the Lord and his earthly mother under my roof. It'd be like us looking at an expectant mother in our home and saying, what a privilege to have the mother of the future president of the United States of America in my, in my house. And then multiply that by a million. What a privilege to have the mother of my Lord here under my roof. And Elizabeth says, you're blessed, verse 45, blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what had been spoken to her by the Lord. Mary is blessed primarily because she's going to be a mother, but most importantly, Mary is blessed because she's a believer. She's a believer in God's promised Messiah. And then she sings. You know, there's a lot of singing that occurs around the birth of Christ. Mary sings. Zacharias will sing. The shepherds sing. Remember Jesus as he's presented in the temple. Simeon sings. 
It appears that the primary effect of the knowledge of the coming of the incarnation of Christ, the thought that God has come to save and redeem us just kind of enacts a desire within us to sing, to burst forth in song. You know, it's been said that the maturity of a Christian is often seen by how they sing and how they cry. As I was uh, studying this and writing those words, I couldn't help but think of a man who used to sit right over here. His name was Bill Bainbridge. Any of y'all remember Bill? And Bill, bless his heart like me, not the greatest singer in the world. But I'll tell you what, Bill was going to sing. And every now and then you look over at him and he'd have tears running down his face. His heart would burst forth and sing at the thought of God and his love towards him. You know, the fact of the matter is, some of you are here this morning and you're having trouble singing. Even as Christmas comes upon us, there are circumstances in your life that are preventing you from singing. Maybe the circumstances are not what you would like. Maybe how things have turned out are not how you envisioned them. Maybe your circumstances are frightening. Maybe you don't know what the future holds. Maybe there's some fear and anxiety behind you and a lot of uncertainty that lies ahead of you. Listen, all of us need the example of Mary this morning. Because the picture that we find here in Mary is that Mary sings not because of the circumstances around her. Listen, Mary's circumstances are anything but ideal. She has just been told that she's going to have a child and she's not been with a man. Can you imagine the thoughts that are going through her mind? How will Joseph respond? Would he even stay with her? Would he out her? Would he turn her in? How would her parents respond? How would her in-laws respond? The punishment for adultery, and that's going to be the rumor. Joseph knows it's not his child. She could be stoned to death. How in the midst of that is she able to sing? She's able to sing in those circumstances because her joy comes not from the external circumstances but her deep belief in a God who loves her and is faithful to his promises. You see, the spirit of the joy of Christmas is not something that you just conjure up based on the size of your bank account or your health status or your family status or your job status. The joy of Christmas is something that you receive from above and you know in your heart through faith in Jesus Christ. Um, the last summer, uh, before I graduated college, I went to work on a guest ranch in Colorado and uh, I really enjoyed it. But uh, the nature of the job, we had guests who would come in on Sunday and you couldn't go to church on Sunday. So for the first time in my life, uh, I could probably up to that point count on one hand how many times I had missed church. And I couldn't go to church and just the circumstances, there were some things that happened. I was frustrated and I'd get an afternoon off during the week and I got to go and just, you could do whatever you want to do. And I would often just grab my backpack, throw a peanut butter and jelly sandwich in and my Bible and my journal and I'd go hiking and I'd find a place and I'd sit down and I'd read God's word and sometimes take a nap. 
and I had gone to do that, and I really needed it. I was looking forward to it, and I found a place on the side of a mountain, and I sat down, and I began to read, and suddenly, as you know can happen in Colorado, you're in the mountains, and those storms just come up on you abruptly, and all of a sudden, the wind blew and the rain just started falling. My Bible gets wet. My journal gets wet. I'm scrambling to put it all away. And now I'm mad. And suddenly a bird lands on a branch beside me and starts to sing. I tell you, if I had a gun, I'd have shot that bird, all right? <laughs> this is the confessions of your pastor this morning. But it was as if God in that moment just slapped me upside the head. As if to say, it's not what's on the outside that makes that bird sing. It's what's on the inside that makes the bird sing. Listen, what gives us the ability to sing this morning is not the external circumstances of our life. Because I think we could all say today, the circumstances of our life are never ideal. What causes us to sing is that we've trusted in a God who knows us by name and has come to save us and redeem us, and he is faithful to his promises. So Mary sings. Long introduction this morning. Bear with me. Before we look at this song, you know what's amazing about this? This stuck out to me above everything else. Mary writes a 10-line song, and she quotes the Old Testament 15 times. Now remember, you're talking about a 17, 18-year-old girl. How many of you could write a 10-line song and quote the Old Testament 15 times? This is a woman who knew her Bible. You want to sing this Christmas? Know your Bible. And she rests upon the promises of God and she sings. Let, let's just read it all together. Then we'll work our way through it line by line. Look at verse 46. And Mary said, my soul exalts the Lord and my spirit has rejoiced in God my Savior. For he has had regard for the humble state of his bond slave. For, for behold, from this time on, all generations will count me blessed. And they would. We're still talking about Mary today. For the mighty one has done great things for me and holy is his name. And his mercy is upon generation after generation towards those who fear him. He has done mighty deeds with his arm. He has scattered those who are proud in the thoughts of their heart. He has brought down rulers from their thrones and has exalted those who were humble. He has filled the hungry with good things and has sent away the rich empty-handed. He has given help to Israel, his servant, in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and his descendants forever. Father, we pray that you would bless the study of your word this morning. God, give us ears to hear and give us hearts to obey that we might apply the principles of this text to our life that just as Mary did, no matter where we find ourselves, no matter what situation we're in today, we would sing. We love you, Lord. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Look with me at verses 46 and 47, those first two lines. And Mary said, my soul exalts the Lord, and my spirit has rejoiced in God my Savior. Mary exalts the Lord. She, she magnifies the Lord in her soul, meaning there's no greater treasure in her life than the Lord. There's nothing she loves more than God. The essence of her heart is she's seeking first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. 
So she exalts the Lord in her soul and her spirit rejoices in God her Savior. She prioritizes the Lord and she finds joy. She magnifies the Lord and her spirit rejoices. And I know there, there's, the commentators talk about the Hebrew parallelism that occurs here. So oftentimes two lines will say the same thing. They just repeat it in different language. But I think there's a cause and effect relationship between these two lines. I think what Mary is saying right here is the more I exalt the Lord in my life, the more joy I experience in my spirit. And when you think about that, most non-believers, most pre-Christians as I like to call them, they don't think of it that way. They think the more I exalt the Lord, the more I prioritize the Lord, the more I submit my life to the Lord, the more I minimize joy. The world thinks if you maximize Christ, you minimize joy. You know what Mary says? Nothing could be further from the truth. The more you exalt the Lord in your soul, the more you maximize his joy in your spirit. You want to know the joy of Christ this Christmas? Exalt him in your soul. Make Christ the number one priority in your life. Seek him in his word. Seek him in prayers. I like to say, pull up a chair at the table of the Lord and taste and see if he's not good. You want to do something special even as we near the first of the year and many of you will begin to think of New Year's resolutions? Take the 30-day challenge. 30 days, 30 minutes in God's word every day. See if this word, see if the joy of the Lord won't change your life. I've seen God do it. This book is living and active. And I believe all, with all my heart, just as Mary says here, the more you exalt the Lord, the more joy you'll have in your spirit. Then look at verse 48. For he has regard for the humble state of his bond slave. For behold, from this time on, all generations will count me blessed. Why does she exalt Christ? Why does she find so much joy in him? Because Christ has regarded her in her humble state. Um, the Lord saw her. The Lord was watching over her as a teenage girl engaged to a carpenter in a lowly city, Nazareth. The Lord saw her. The Lord cares about her. The Lord knows her. It's an amazing truth. Don't miss this. It's, it's written, again, by a teenager. And she's discovered the amazing grace of God. And in God's grace, she finds the answer to the question that I think secretly most teenagers have. In fact, I'd say most adults have. And that's this, does anyone know where I am? Does anyone understand what I'm feeling? Does anybody care? Does anybody take notice? And here, Mary, this teenage girl, whatever else occurs in her life, all the ups and the downs, her soul is anchored in this truth, that God sees her. That God sees her right where she's at and every tear she cries and every heartache she feels. He knows her name, and he loves her. You know, I, when I was writing this, I thought about, um, I was serving at a church in Montgomery McGee Road Baptist Church, and Faith and I began to pray, and we sensed that it was time for me to see um, about a church that I could pastor, that if God would lead us to a place, and we began to pray and use the Baptist resources that are out there to try to find a church, and we began to look at the job openings that were out there in every church we ran into. Uh, they might only be around 100 people, but they wanted a pastor with five years' experience and a PhD. 
And uh, we immediately thought, <laughs> I better get real content with where I'm at because we're not going anywhere. Uh, but we prayed about it. And uh, we found a few churches that we thought maybe, just maybe, they'd give me some consideration. And so we took uh, those cassettes. Do y'all still remember those cassettes? Yeah. They would tape the services, and then after it's over, if I asked for copies, they had one of those machines that you could put four cassettes in, and you push the button, and you know? And we'd take those cassettes, and we'd put them in a manila envelope with my resume, and Faith and I would pray over them. And we sent them out, and months would go, and you're thinking, it's done. And uh, one day I got a letter at the church from one of those churches, and... Uh, the first line in the letter as I opened it, it said, we, we're from First Baptist Church, Valley, Alabama, and we'd like to talk to you further. And that's all I needed to read. I just remember getting on my knees and weeping in my office. Because at that moment, it was just good to know that God knew where I was at. I tell you, there's nothing like knowing. In those moments, sometimes when it's the, the bleakest in your life that God comes to you with a gentle reminder, I know you. I know where you're at. I love you. I care about you. And I have purpose and meaning for your life. Now, this is the truth that anchors Mary's soul, that God loves her. God has regarded her humble state. And then look at verse 49. For the mighty one has done great things for me, and holy is his name. The mighty one. She recognizes this is the God of all creation, the Lord of heaven and earth. The one who spoke everything we see into existence. And, and holy is his name. He's set apart. I mean, this is the essence of David in Psalm 8 when he says, What is man, when I consider the heavens and the works of your fingers, the, the moon and the stars which you have ordained, what is man that you would take thought of him? Why would God, who's all powerful and holy, why would he want to have anything to do with me? What Mary says is, This God who's all powerful and holy, he's done great things for me. And I love that because as you read this song, Mary uses first-person pronouns. Earlier she says, uh, and my spirit has rejoiced in God, my Savior. Here she says, uh, the mighty one has done great things for me. You know, Christmas really hasn't gotten into your life until you start using first-person pronouns. That yes, Christmas represents God coming to this earth for the world, but more importantly than this, it's God coming to the earth for you, individually. Mary says, he's done great things for me. Verse 50, and his mercy is upon generation after generation towards those who fear him. Mary says, from generation to generation, any, any man or woman who fears God can always find mercy. This is the beauty of this, that his invitation is always open. Mary rejoices. It doesn't matter what generation you find yourself in, the invitation to come to God is open, and you'll find mercy if you'll fear him. What does it mean to fear him? It's not to be scared of God, but it's to have a recognition that you're a sinner and you're a stranger in a foreign land, and your only hope is the mercy of God. That you can't make it through life without him. And the picture here is if you're in that position today and you recognize you're a sinner in a strange and foreign land and you can't navigate this world on your own and you need help 
If you will go to God, doesn't matter where you find yourself or what you've done, you'll find mercy. He's a God who shows mercy from, from generation to generation to all who fear him. Then verse 51 through 53, he's done mighty deeds with his arm. He has scattered those who are proud in the thoughts of their heart. He has brought down rulers from their thrones and has exalted those who were humble. He's filled the hungry with good things and sent away the rich empty-handed. There's two truths that are in these verses here. Number one, God opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble. That he scatters the proud, sends away the rich empty-handed. That those who, who trust in themselves, in their own accomplishments in their money, in their riches. What he says here, they wind up disappointed. Ultimately, they're scattered. They're humbled. Mary is able to see what God really values in this world. That the way to greatness in God's economy is through humility. In God's kingdom, the way up is down. As one theologian put it, I love this, he said, the world is a store where the price tags have become confused. Isn't that so true? This world is terribly confused about what is truly valuable. Most people are putting their treasure and their value in things that will pass away. They'll fade, they'll rot, they'll rust, they'll be gone. Mary's able to see what is truly valuable, and that is a heart that is humble before God. And the message is really simple. If you're proud in the thoughts of your heart, if you think that you're great because of your wealth or your status or your position or your accomplishments or even all your religious good works, if you are proud in the thoughts of your heart, then ultimately you will be sent away empty-handed. But on the other hand, if you know that you're a sinner, if you know that you've fallen short of the glory of God, if you know you can't save yourself, if you know your only hope is the mercy of God, if you'll run to him, then you'll be exalted. You'll be filled with good things. A good illustration of this in scripture is Naaman. You remember the Old Testament, he's the captain of the Aramean army, he's a very powerful man, a very rich man, a very wealthy man. He's got one problem, guess what, he's a leper. And that's a bad problem to happen. And at one point, they go out on a raid, and they take a little Israeli girl captive, and who does she ha just so happen to be the servant of? Naaman's wife. And she hears about Naaman's struggle, and she says, it's too bad you can't go see this prophet in Samaria, and that guy can cure anyone. Naaman, hey, what it could have hurt. He decides to go to Israel. Check this guy out. He goes to the king of Israel. The king of Israel says, I can't cure anyone. Elijah says, send him over to me. So Naaman goes to Elijah's house. I love this. He goes over to Elijah's house. He's a very powerful man. He's the captain of the army. This is a wealthy guy. He goes to Elijah's little hut. I just picture him a little preacher in a cul-de-sac. And he's upstairs. And here's Naaman knocking on the door. I'd, I'd like to see Elijah. Hey, Elijah, there's this guy here. I ain't got time. I picture Elijah. He's watching the second half of the Chiefs game. And he says, I ain't leaving my home's going to throw a touchdown here in a minute. I ain't leaving for this guy. And guess what he does? He sends Gehazi. I ain't even going to mess with him. He sends Gehazi, a servant. And Gehazi goes out there to Naaman and says, here's what you need to do. You got to go down the Jordan River and dip seven times. Can you imagine Naaman? Are you kidding me? Does he know who I am? Who are you? You're a servant? And you're going to tell me to go dip? We've got better rivers back in Aramea. What in the world? 
And do you realize what this takes? He's a leper. He's probably wrapped himself up, probably his only his eyes exposed. He's got to go down there. He's got to expose his leprosy, get in front of everybody, and dip seven times, not in any river, but the Jordan. And he says, that's a bunch of hooey or whatever. I ain't doing it. And his servant says, what? What do you got to lose? You can't save yourself. You're a goner. So he goes down, and guess what he does? He humbles himself. Do you know how foolish he must have looked, this wealthy, powerful man getting in a river, and he dips once and twice, and the seventh time he comes out and he's healed. It's a picture of salvation. You have to humble yourself, and you don't go to any God. You go to the one God of Israel and his Messiah, Jesus Christ, because he's the only way to salvation, and you have to humble yourself. I don't care where you come from, how much money you have or job you have. You have to humble yourself before him in recognition of your sinfulness and his salvation, but if you will, you'll be exalted. You'll be filled with good things. You know, one of the greatest obstacles to the salvation of Christ is pride. It's the root of every sin, but you cannot know the salvation of God if pride rules in your heart. On the other hand, God gives grace to the humble. He exalts the humble to those who know that they're sinners, know that they're not great, recognize their sin. They'll come to Christ, they never leave empty-handed. The second truth that we see in this is that she speaks in what is known as the aorist tense. The aorist tense is hard to explain in the English, but it's simply just the past tense, the way we read it. There's more to it than this, but the way we read it in scriptures in the past tense. So she's talking in the past tense about things that Christ will do in the future. I mean, think about this. Christ is only days conceived, and she's already talking about things that he will do. In other words, she believes so much in what God has promised and said he will do through Christ that she speaks about it in the past tense. We, we wouldn't say it this way. We would have said it uh, that he will exalt the humble. We would say he will scatter those who have pride in their heart, that he will bring down rulers. She speaks in the past tense. Folks, that's faith. To believe the promises and the truths of God's word so much that you can talk about them as if they've already happened. And Mary knows, I'm trusting that this one who will come, guess what he'll do? This one who will be born through her, he'll be the ultimate demonstration of God's judgment. That he will put down wickedness, he'll put down evil, and he'll reward the righteous. That's what she's saying. I'm trusting so much in his promises, I'm gonna speak about it in the past tense. You know, um, it's Christmas season, can't help but bring in my favorite movie, It's a Wonderful Life. Uh, you know I reference it every Christmas. Uh, but It's a Wonderful Life, written by Frank Capra. And Frank Capra said of that movie, the one question he was asked more than any other question, more than any other question in the mail and the letters he would receive, the one question he'd get was, what happened to Mr. Potter? What happened to Mr. Potter? Have you seen the movie? Mr. Potter just ticks you off, doesn't he? Just makes you mad. My favorite part is where George goes to him, he tries to work a deal. You wouldn't mind living in the nicest house, taking a trip every now and then, and... You know, George is kind of wooed into it. It's kind of like Satan, just kind of, whoosh, that's the way I picture it. And then he goes to reach out his hand, and he shakes his hand, and he recoils. No, doggone it, you know. In the grand scheme of things, you're nothing but a scurvy little spider. That's my favorite part. He gives it to him. But you remember that the, the, the deal goes, and what happens? The, the money's lost, but it's not lost, is it? You know what happened. What happened? Potter stole it. 
He stole it. And it caused all this heartache and all this pain. And I don't know about you, but there's a part of me that wants to say, well, surely something happens that at the end of the movie is there, they're singing there. Somebody walks in and goes, we found the money. Potter's got it. And they go down to Potter's place. They drag him out in the street and they say, should old acquaintance be, you know, and they're just punching him and nailing him. I mean, that's the way I would have ended it. But you know, when we, when we think of the ministry of Christ, when we think about salvation history, one of the questions that we can't help but ask is, what happens to Satan? What happened? Because he's caused a lot of heartache. He's caused a lot of pain. What happens to Satan? What happens to this demonic army? What happens to those, this world that has rejected Christ and caused so much harm? And that's why we study Revelation. To be reminded that one day the kingdoms of this world will become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ. And Satan will be cast in the eternal lake of fire along with all of the demonic army and all those who have rejected Christ. That one day the wrong will fail. And the right will prevail with peace on earth, goodwill towards men. We know who wins in the end. So it may look pretty bad right now, but Mary knew Christ, who wasn't even yet born, would set things right in the end. That's us. So she was able to see what God really values, and she trusted in the promises of God. It caused her to sing. In verse 54, he has given help to Israel, his servant, in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and his descendants forever. Mary rejoices in God's faithfulness to Israel, that the promises he made, he would come through on them, that in Genesis 12, all the way through Genesis 15, all these promises that God had made to Abraham, that in your seed, all the nations of the world will be blessed. The promise that God made in Genesis 3.15, that God would send something, someone who would, who would crush Satan and he would make things right. She trusted in those promises, not because Israel was good, not because they deserved it, but because God is faithful. This is a God that can be trusted. Do you see, as we look at this song, do you see why Mary had so much joy in her heart? She exalted the Lord. She magnified the Lord. She had joy in her spirit. She knew that no matter where she was, the Lord saw her. The Lord loved her. The Lord cared about her. She knew that God had done mighty things in the past and would do mighty things in the future for her. Do you know that this Christmas that God has come for you? Mary knew God had come for her. She knew his mercy is upon generation after generation towards those who fear him. She rejoiced in the fact that the invitation was always open. No matter what generation that anybody could find mercy if they'd come to God with fear in their heart. Knowing that he was their only hope. And the requirement. Oh this is what she rejoiced in. That God does not exalt the intelligent that God does not exalt the beautiful, that God does not exalt the wealthy. God exalts the humble, the humble in spirit. God exalts those who recognize their sin, that if you wanna come and be exalted by Christ today, you don't have to have a perfect ACT score. You don't have to have a lot of money, and you don't have to be that handsome. Amen. You know what you have to have? Humility. 
You don't have to be perfect. You just got to be perfectly honest. That just like all of us, no matter what facade you might wear today, you're a sinner. And your only hope is Jesus. And if you'll come to him, what Mary says here, you won't be disappointed because he is always faithful. Mary knew these truths. And they were so deeply embedded in her heart that she had to sing. You know, we talk about uh, singing and crying as marks of maturity and the Christian faith. But it's really, those are just symptoms of people who just really love Jesus. That's what we are. When you get right down to it, you know, we call ourselves Christians. But in the New Testament, we're only called Christians three times. And two of those times, we're called Christians by our enemies. No, you know what we really are? We're just people who fell in love with Jesus. We love Jesus. It's the mark of all the great saints. They're just men and women who love Jesus. Charles Spurgeon, the one thing he wanted everybody to know is that I'm just a man who loves Jesus. I was doing some research for this message. I came across this quote. It's his final words at Metropolitan Tabernacle in London. It was his last sermon ever. He didn't know it was gonna be his last sermon, but these are the last words that Spurgeon, and this just speaks of a heart that loves Jesus. It's It's the heart of a Mary. Listen to what Spurgeon said. He said, to those who have no master, those who have no master are slaves to themselves. Depend on it. You'll either serve Satan or Christ, either self or the Savior, You will find sin, self, and Satan in the world to be hard masters. But if you wear the yoke of Christ, you'll find him so meek and lowly of heart that you'll find rest for your souls. He's the most wonderful of captains. There never was anyone like him among the choicest of princes. He's always to be found in the thickest part of the battle. When the wind blows cold, I love this, when the wind blows cold, He always takes the bleak side of the hill. The heaviest end of the cross lies ever on his shoulders. If he bids us carry a burden, he carries it also. If there's anything that is gracious, generous, kind, and tender, yea, lavish, and superabundant, in love, you will always find it in him. These 40 years and more I have served him. Blessed be his name. And I have had nothing but love from him. And I would be glad to continue yet another 40 years in this same dear service here below if it so pleased him. His service is life, peace, joy. Oh, that you would enter on it at once. God help you to enlist under the banner of Jesus today. Do we have a hymn? We got a hymn. Written, as I was thinking about a song written by a 17, 18-year-old girl, this hymn was written by a 16-year-old boy named William Featherston. He wrote these words that we sing often. My Jesus, I love thee. You love Jesus this Christmas? My Jesus, I love thee, I know thou art mine. For thee all the follies of sin I resign. My gracious Redeemer, my Savior art thou. If ever I love thee, my Jesus, tis now. I love thee because thou hast first loved me and purchased my pardon on Calvary's tree. I love thee for wearing the thorns on thy brow. If ever I love thee, my Jesus, tis now.
I love thee in life, I will love thee in death, and praise thee as long as thou lendest me breath, and say when the death dew lies cold on my brow, my Jesus, if I ever loved thee, my Jesus, tis now. In mansions of glory and endless delight, I'll ever adore thee in heaven so bright. I'll sing with a glittering crown on my brow. If ever I love thee, my Jesus, tis now. Let's pray together. Father, we, we're overwhelmed that you would love us. And that you would love us so much that you would send your one and only son to enter in the filth of humanity. In a truth that is so mysterious. It's hard to get our mind around. The incarnation of Christ. God come to earth to die for our sins. Lord, I pray if there's anybody here that doesn't know you, I would pray with all my heart that they would trust in you today. God, I pray today that they would understand, just like all of us, that we're all sinners. And in their humility, they would run to the only means of salvation that you have provided, which is Jesus Christ. Pray that they would know the joy and the freedom. They would know today if they'll run to Christ, they will not leave empty-handed. They'll be filled with good things. That you will exalt the humble. And God, for those of us that do know you, I pray, Lord, we, we struggle. There's so many struggles in this world. I can't imagine all the burdens that every person carries in this room this morning. Things that weigh down their soul. God, I pray that you would speak to them in their heart right now that you know them. You love them. You see every tear that falls. You see every pain they feel. And God, I pray that this Christmas, the truths of your word, who you are, what you've done and what you will do would so overwhelm them that they would be able to sing despite the circumstances. That we would demonstrate the world a joy that can only be found in Jesus. Lord, we love you and we praise you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm going to invite you to stand with me this morning as we give you an opportunity to respond in whatever way God might be leading on your heart. Maybe you have questions about salvation, how you can know Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior. We'll have pastors here at the front who would love to talk with you, love to pray with you. Maybe you'd like to unite with our church family. Maybe you've been through our membership class and, and uh, you've talked with one of us as pastors and you'd like to make your decision public to unite with our church family. If you want to become a member... We'd love to receive you this morning. Again, there'll be pastors here. Maybe you just want to pray with somebody. This is your time. Know today you'll never regret obeying Jesus. So you respond as we sing.